Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. You can open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. If you were with us last week, uh, you'll recall that we're in the middle of a dialogue Jesus is having with a Pharisee and some scribes that were at a dinner party. Jesus was invited over to the home of a prominent Pharisee, a ruler, on the Sabbath for dinner. Unfortunately, the dinner invitation was not a term of endearment. It was meant as a means of setup that Jesus would be indicted for operating you know, in, in a gracious and merciful way on the Sabbath as if that wasn't God at all. As if God isn't a gracious and merciful God that wouldn't do something on the Sabbath. Like he would bind himself in such a way that he wouldn't be able to heal somebody in need on the Sabbath. Could you imagine? You come here this morning, we're like, God can't do any work, guys. Would that be, that would be, what, what, what's the point of coming? We need God to do work in us. And so Jesus is present at this party and he is not there for dinner. He's there to be dinner. That sucks when you're the person there, you know, invited for dinner and you become the dinner where everybody's watching you intently, waiting to see what you're going to do. You ever been there? Ever seen that happen in your own life where you're like, wait a second, this doesn't seem like a friendly invitation anymore. I came, I'm here, but yet it doesn't seem like you are for me, like you're against me really. That's the kind of environment Jesus walks into. Here's what I want you to know, is although that was the environment, Jesus went anyway. You know that? Like Jesus knew he, what he was walking into. It wasn't a surprise to him when he walked into a setup. He, he knew what he was facing just with the, um, the way that the Pharisees and scribes were already interacting with him. The word tells us that at this point in Jesus' ministry that they had already rejected him as Messiah. It was clear. Now, their point was to remove him from public service completely, just to remove him from the face of the earth so that he wouldn't uh, continue to cause problems for them. That was really the, the whole point of everything that's happening in this story, in this account, this dinner party. Well, Jesus won't be the sacrifice at this dinner party, although he will be a sacrifice. We know that it's, he's just months away from the cross at this point in his ministry. He will become the sacrifice, just not now and not in this setting. Uh, the, the leader of the Pharisees, the one that it was his home, he invited uh, the, the, the scribes there and the lawyers so that they could give interpretation of the law. The Pharisees were just sort of, uh, you know, they weren't necessarily theologians. I don't know what you, you know, what your understanding of a Pharisee is, but they were just really religious people that were kind of, um, you know, laymen. They were people that had jobs, and, and then they were also, they had a service, you know, in terms of this, the, this propagation of legalism. They were living by all these man-made rules and all this kind of stuff, but they were just normal people like you, they, like you and I. They just lived in, the, in society, and they did their work, and they had businesses and all this kind of stuff, and it was the scribes that they depended on for the theological um, positions, you know, it wasn't them. They weren't necessarily schooled in the word. It was the scribes. And so when you were going to try and bind somebody by the law, a Pharisee wouldn't do it. It would be a scribe, the religious lawyer. And so they, this man would need to, to invite over some scribes to have that happen. So, so here we have, uh, you know, the invited guests. We have uh, the, the, the Pharisees, and then we have the scribes, and we have Jesus. Oh, but there's one, uh, one other unlikely invitation that was given to a man that has what's called dropsy. Dropsy is, is a condition. It's, it's a symptom of, of a disease that's happening within inside of somebody. And this man, it literally it causes water retention. And they call it dropsy because it is literally in, in the Greek, water in the face. Literally retaining water on your face. You could see that this man had some condition, whether it was congestive heart failure causes that, where you begin to retain water. And literally, a, a, a patient with congestive heart failure will drown in his own fluid if they don't give him some, some kind of a you know, diuretic or something to get rid of the water. They'll just literally drown in their own fluid. 
Maybe he had congestive heart failure. We don't know. Um, but what we know is that he was invited to come, not because they wanted him in the presence, because they would have seen this man as a sinner. Something that was being, really, actually, they thought the reason this man was suffering with this condition was because of some kind of sexual sin. That was the view from a pharmaceutical standpoint that they saw that this man was engaged in some sort of immoral sexual activity, and that's why he had this disease. Could you imagine, you know, just in a fallen body that's breaking, and, you know, I woke up this morning, and my body's not working like it was. I tried to play death ball at the youth conference. My body doesn't even move. Like, my mindset, go that way, and my body's like, huh? Do what? I can't do that. You know, as you get older and your bodies are breaking down, you're not, you know, it, it's not unusual to have some ailment, some disease, something happen to your flesh, right? Because it's breaking down, it's dying. That was what God said would happen at the fall of man. Not necessarily even a result of a sin in your life, it's just, just our bodies are breaking down. And yet, the Pharisees would take it to a different level. They would say, no, it's your sin. It's sin in your life. So you have to wonder what this man was feeling like when he was there at, present at this dinner party. And, and, and yet, uh, he was there as a prop in the movie play, right? He was there as just, a, just an object to accomplish some purpose that they had, which was indictment upon Jesus Christ. And, and, and so Jesus, just seeing what's happening, he knew already. He, he, it says he responded to them. We'll read it in a second. But he responded to them. They didn't say anything. He responded to the setup. He responded to what he was seeing and what he was perceiving based on this situation. And, and Jesus said, let me ask you guys a question, scribes and Pharisees. Is it lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it lawful? Jesus understood what their opinion was, what their man-made laws were. He understood what their answer would be. And so Jesus just responds to his own question through action, and he literally just heals the guy. It says he, he brings him over, he heals him, and he sends him away. Now you have uh, these Pharisees that, that can't answer a question. Jesus calls them out on their hypocrisy. He says, if you guys, having a son or an ox would, that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you, you would immediately go and you know, pull them out of that, wouldn't you? And it says they didn't answer him. They couldn't answer him. They couldn't answer him. He was speaking right into their legalism, which they had no answer for. And when you speak into a legalist life, they have no answers eventually. They don't know what to say because when it comes down to what does God's word say and you point out that God's word says this and it's in opposition to what they say his word says, they have no other recourse. They have nowhere to go with that. And when Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, how can you argue with that? You can't. So that's what we're, we're picking it up this morning is in the midst of that happening. And Jesus, it shows us here, uh, sees something in them that I want to point out to you. Let, let's stand and read Luke chapter 14. And we're going to pick it up. I'm going to read it and pick it up in verse 1 for context. But we're really going to look at verses 7 through 14. This is what... The word of God says, Luke chapter 14, verse 1, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisee, uh, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath, they will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Verse 7, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited to someone, by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in place of honor, lest some, someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
He also, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or um, your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And again, Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us, Lord, to see what you would want to say to us this morning in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If there were ever a topic, you know, if you could categorize a topic, or if there were ever a topic that had the utmost importance in the Christian life, I think it would be the topic of humility. I think it would be the topic of humility, and I say that because humility is one of the foundational characteristics that cause us to come to Christ. Humility has to be present for you to accept salvation. You realize that. What keeps you away from Jesus? Pride. Pride keeps you away from Jesus. Humility has to be present in order for you to come to Christ. Uh, the early church father, John Chrysostom, said, Humility is the root, mother, nurse, foundation, and bond of all virtue. What he means is that humility is the catalyst of anything good in our life. It's a result of humility. Think about that. What good has come out of your life when pride was present? Maybe you got what you wanted. Maybe it took you where you wanted to go, but at what cost? At what cost? Was it a relationship? Did you have to step over somebody to get to the position you wanted to be at? What did it cost you when pride was present in order for you to get what you wanted? It cost you something. It cost you greatly, my guess is. Pride can't produce good in our life. It's sin. It produces death. The perception might be, oh, but I'm doing well. Are you? By whose perspective? By yours? The Lord would say, oh, just wait. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud. Oh, just wait. It's coming. God doesn't endure. He, he hates pride because pride is the thing that really keeps us from going deeper with God. It keeps us from depending on God. It keeps us from coming to God. It is a hindrance. It's a roadblock. It's a wall that keeps us from coming to the Lord. Humility is vital in our Christian walk, and that's why Jesus begins to speak about that in this text. So just how important is it? Well, it's so important that, again, you can't have salvation without it. You can't exercise faith without being humble. You understand that? You can't come to the place where you, want, you believe upon Jesus Christ until you see the need for Jesus Christ. It's humility that is the key that unlocks faith within you to believe upon Jesus Christ. Humility grants faith access in our lives so that we can accept the grace God has given us through His Son, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. Let me say that one more time. Humility grants faith access in our lives so that we can accept the grace God has given us through the cross in His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, without humility, you will never bow your heart to Jesus. Humility opens up the channel of salvation like, unlike anything else. It is also a key that unlocks endless amounts of grace and faith. How many of you would say that you're in need of grace this morning? Anybody in need of grace? I'm in need of a tremendous amount of grace. Well, the Bible promises us that through humility that we can get grace. It's, it's James chapter 4, verse 6. It says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You want grace? Be humble. You want to receive God's grace? Be humble. You can't get grace from God if you are proud. This isn't a work. This is an attitude. This is a characteristic within. This is a positional thing. You're either standing before God saying, I will not bow to you, or you are bowing before him saying, I, I can't stand before you. It's a position in the heart. And when you come bowing, 
you know, grace is poured down upon you. But God will resist the proud. You know what that word resist means? It means he will array himself against you. Who wants to go up against God? Anybody? Anybody? No, no, no. Because God is, is, is all-powerful. He's almighty. He is the authority over everything. Who wants to stand against him? And yet, how many of us have for 24 years? For 24 years, I stood up against God as if I am something. Pride. It's pride. We need the grace of God, and in order to get the grace of God, we must yield ourselves in humility to him. Humility unchannels, or unchannels, humility is the channel that unlocks faith. Andrew Murray, one of my favorite Christian uh, authors, you know, uh, he's a dead guy. It's always good to have dead guys in your library. Dead guys are full of wisdom and knowledge and power. And whenever you go into a bookstore, if you don't see dead guys section, you're not, they, they don't have good books. You know, when you, you see Charles Spurgeon, you see Andrew Murray, you see, you know, all these guys who have gone before us that have laid foundational works for the church. Andrew Murray being one of them in my life just really inspired a lot of things in my life talking about God's forgiveness, God's grace, and how much he loves us. He said this, he said, we need only think for a moment what faith is. Is it not the confession of nothingness and helplessness? The surrender and the waiting to let God work? Is it not in itself the most humble thing that there can be? The acceptance of our place as dependents? Who can claim or get or do nothing but what grace bestows? Humility is simply the disposition which prepares the soul for living on trust, i.e. faith. And every, even the most secret breathing of pride and self-seeking, self-will, self-confidence, self-exaltation is just the strengthening of that self which cannot enter the kingdom or possess things of the kingdom because it refuses to allow God to be what he is and what he must be there all in all. It is the humility that brings a soul to, to nothing before God that also removes every hindrance to faith and makes it only fear lest it should dishonor him by not trusting him wholly. Pride will stop you dead in your tracks as it relates to the Lord. Whether you are an unbeliever or a believer, it works the same. It inhibits faith. You want more faith in your life? Be humble. Be dependent on God as the giver of faith. Humility is of utmost importance, and there is no one better to teach us about humility than Jesus himself, who is the picture-perfect um, example of what humility looks like. From his earthly coming to his departure, Jesus Christ humbled himself. He came in the form of a babe. God in the flesh as a baby, dependent on sinful human beings. That Jesus himself would be placed in the hands of sinners. You want to talk about humility. Jesus knows it well. Philippians chapter 2 verses 7 through 11 says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in, in human form, he humbled himself by be, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him every, uh, the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is something incredible that Jesus demonstrated for us in his life. And it is the very principle that he is laying out to these scribes and Pharisees and to us this morning and that is this idea that in order to be exalted, you have to be humbled. In order to be exalted, you have to be humbled. We all say this in our Christian life. God, I just want to be used by you. God, I want to do something great for you. Lord, if you could just put me in a position to you know, do something great for you, I would do it for you. And yet we always have to ask ourselves the one question, who are we doing it for? 
Why are we doing what we're doing? Is there pride in my life? Do I want to be exalted? If I want to be exalted, the Bible says I'll be humbled. But if I want to be, if in, in, in humility, it's how I am exalted. Jesus demonstrated that beautifully. He is God. And yet it tells us that he came in the form of man, that he humbled himself. He emptied himself of who, uh, of who he is. He placed his rights on hold in heaven. And he said, I will become the sacrifice. God in the flesh. And it says that he became obedient. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Listen, even death on the cross, the most humiliating, humiliating form of, of death in, you know, by the Romans was crucifixion. To hang on a tree, it was what for the vile. It was for those who uh, you know, did the most demonstrous things to people. It was for the people that they wanted to publicly display in the fact that they were, be, they were receiving all that they should receive because of what they had done. And Jesus had done nothing. He was perfect. And he hung there, not for his sin, but for your sin. He hung on the cross for you, for your sin. He was made a public spectacle for you and for me. And I don't know about you, but I'm not one to be the sacrifice for somebody else. To a point, yes. But to take the sin of the world on my shoulders, can't do it. Jesus had to be the one, and he did it. And in so doing, he lays down a foundational work for us as believers. And that is, if you want to be exalted in the kingdom of heaven you have to be humble and on the kingdom in earth you are humble here and you will be exalted there and that is the principle that he lays out for these guys through this this thing called a parable what's a parable a parable is is a an earthly story with a heavenly meaning it just really simply it's 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 something that that God uses to illustrate a kingdom principle in our life. It's, a, it's an earthly thing, something we can get, something we understand. And he illustrates some heavenly principle to us so that we can get it. It's not an allegory, and that's where people mess up parables. An allegory is everything applies to something. A parable is the overall idea is the principle. So you get in trouble when you take a parable and you try and apply every single thing that, that the story is laying out as if there is some, some you know, spiritual meaning to it. And you can make all kinds of stuff up when you do that. That's why it's clear to us that it's a parabole. Para, in the Greek, literally means to lay, to, to, to lay alongside or to, to, to bring alongside. Bole means to cast or, or to lay. So... So Jesus is literally laying alongside of a heavenly, a, an earthly principle, a heavenly truth. He's trying to get us, he's paralleling something. It's important for us to understand that. Now, why does Jesus speak in parables? You guys want to hear my opinion about it? Please don't say no. You don't want to hear my opinion. Who cares what I think, right? Who cares what you think? No offense. But we want to say, what does the word of God say? Fortunately for us... Jesus answers the very question. Like he tells us what, why he speaks to people in parables. Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 13, it says this. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it, was not, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he, um, and he will have an abundance, but... The, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak it to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Why did Jesus speak in parables then? Twofold reason. First, to conceal and to reveal. To conceal the truth from those who, are, who have rejected Jesus Christ. To conceal the truth from those who don't want to hear it. 
So these Pharisees, why does, it, why does he lay it out there in a, in a parable? Because it, it's requirement in order to come to God to operate in faith. If you don't understand something, you know, then, then by faith you're going to come to Jesus and you're going to ask him. And that was the point of him speaking in a parable is that, you know, the truth is concealed for those who don't, who, who, who you know, if he just laid it out so plainly, there would be no, no will in our lives to, to act by faith upon it. You know what I'm saying? So, so Jesus literally lays out this story. It's simple in, in terms of, you know, what he's trying to bring to the table, but it's concealing in a way for the unbelieving that don't want to believe. And so God is, is doing that in that way. He is also at the very same time revealing heavenly principles in a very simple manner. Who of us know what heaven is like? Anybody been there? You know what it's like? Is, are, you're a citizen of heaven, yes. You're an heir to the, the kingdom of heaven. All of that, yes. But, but, but the earthly part of us is still kind of battling that. And we don't understand the heavenly principles. That's why Jesus gave us some of them in the um, Sermon on the Mount. You know, and if you read the Sermon on the Mount, go to Matthew chapter 5, read it, read it later, um, Matthews 5 through chapter 7, you can read all of that. But what Jesus is doing is laying down principles from the kingdom that are to apply into our life today. And really what you'll see is that, you know, the Beatitudes right there, you'll see that it all comes down to being broken in spirit, man, being bankrupt, just being coming to the Lord and saying, I've got nothing to offer you. If you come to him in that way in humility, right, then, then you're gonna, he's going to flood your heart with these principles and, and he's going to give you, cause you to understand. But when you come to God and you're like, hey, God, you're lucky to have me, you know, I'm glad that you're on my team, kind of attitude with the Lord, the Lord's like, you can't handle the truth. I'm not going to give you the truth in that way. You want to know, you can ask questions. So that's why he did it. Now, why a parable in, about humility here? Why in this setting? Well, because God's word always meets us where we are. Would you agree with that? God's word always meets us where we are. So I would say to you, if you're somewhere and God's word isn't meeting you there, some, there's a disconnect in your heart. There's a disconnect. Something's going on with you on a horizontal. You're, maybe you're not vertically focused or whatever it might be, but God's word always meets us where we are. It doesn't always tell us what we want to hear, but it always meets us where we are. So Jesus is meeting these fellows where they are. He's speaking to them right where they are. It tells us that clearly in verse 7, where it says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. In verse 1, it tells us that Jesus was being watched. Did you check that? Did you, did you catch that? So Jesus was being watched. Now, notice the tables have turned and Jesus is watching. Now, the way, that's being the way that uh, Jesus was being watched was with a critical eye. Uh, the way that um, Jesus is watching them is with a uh, with, uh, um, compassionate eye. He wants them to, to, to see their own heart. And so that's why he begins to speak in a parable. He wants these Pharisees, he's going to meet them right where they are. And sometimes when you open God's word and you're saying, God, I want you to speak to me. I want you to speak truth into my life. And then you're just... God smacks you right in front of your face with something, and you're like, well, I didn't mean that. Well, what's the, you know, I, I didn't mean you, for you to meet me there. Like, like, I meant you to meet me over here, but this is not what I was even on my, my heart. And the Lord says, no, but this is what, you want me to meet you here, I have to meet you here first. See what I'm saying? So in order for them to be met by God in, in a meaningful way, in terms of for them to come to that place where they would accept Jesus as Messiah, he had to meet them here in their, hum in their pride. He had to break down this, this, this wall of pride. And so, so, you know, what I love about this is that Jesus doesn't jump. You know, he's, what is he speaking about? What's the context? Sabbath, right? Like he's being challenged on what's lawful when it comes to the Sabbath. And Jesus doesn't then go on to give a, a, a huge discourse on the Sabbath and why what he did was right. Let me, let me put that into just a couple words. He didn't defend himself. Sometimes we're so busy defending ourselves that we're not allowing the word of God to speak into other people's lives because we want them to see us, and that's pride. It, when we come before somebody and God wants to speak through us and we're too busy defending our position with them about something, we're missing it. 
God wants to use us to speak directly into people's lives. Jesus was that vessel. And if you miss that, you really miss a lot of how Jesus lived, and you'll, you won't get it in your life. Jesus didn't live for himself. Jesus lived for you. He lived for me. He lived for them, for them, for the Pharisees, for the scribes. He didn't hate them. He loved them. Did they set him up? Yes, but he's trying to speak into their life so that they could understand him so that maybe their faith would be, there would be a breakthrough. So he speaks into their life. And, it's all, and this teaching comes as a result of Jesus watching and observing them, not with a critical eye, but with a loving eye. He was looking to reveal himself. If you have the idea that Jesus is in heaven right now watching you, and he is, but if you have the idea that he's in heaven watching you to see when you're going to mess up, you don't understand Jesus at all. You don't understand him at all. He is in heaven right now being your advocate before the Father. Every time you blow it, he steps in on your behalf and he says, I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that. And he will do that until you take your last breath and you stand before him and you are changed and you are made perfect into the form of his likeness. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus stands in the gap for you always. Every time you blow it, Jesus, it's his righteousness that covers you, that clothes you, that his Father sees. He didn't live for himself. He lived for you. He lived for me. He lived for them. His heart towards the scribes and Pharisees is that they would have an ear to hear and a heart to obey. That's his heart. He's not mad at them. He's not going to, like, I'm going to show you guys, you know, who you messed with here. You messed with the wrong guy. I'm going to really show you how, how wrong you are. He could have, easily. But his heart isn't in protecting himself. His heart isn't in presenting himself bigger and better than he is. His heart is that they would see him for who he is. It wasn't about self-exaltation at all in Jesus' life. It was in humility that he did this. It was in love. Now this is tough. This is where the rubber meets the road in your life, in my life, is when somebody has done something to you and now you're called to be Jesus to them. And it's where you have to set aside all your feelings and you have to set aside, you know, all the hurt that's happened to you and you have to take on this form of Christ. And I would tell you that is, it is impossible to do. It is impossible to do without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is impossible. But because God being so gracious and loving to us, sent us a sacrifice to forgive our sins and then empowered us by the Spirit of God so that we could live the life that we're called to live. He sealed us and then he filled us so that we could live, that we could be transformed, so that we could have the fruit of the Spirit, love, and everything else flowing out of that, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He gave us those things so that we could become like Christ, but we still have to die to ourselves, don't we? That's where the battle happens. Jesus was limited to the same Holy Spirit you have. He was limited to the same Holy Spirit you have. He never sinned. His flesh was the same flesh Adam came in. In other words, because Jesus was born of a virgin, if you don't understand that, the reason why he came as being born in a virgin is so that he didn't take on the same DNA structure as sinful man. Jesus came in the same form as Adam. Did Adam have a mother and a father? No, Adam had a creator, which was God that formed him out of dust and then blew his breath into him. Jesus came through a vessel in a human form, but through the Holy Spirit. And so he didn't have a, he has a father in heaven. His, his dad is God in the earthly form. And so that's why that happened that way. 
And Jesus came, he, you know, the Bible calls him the second Adam. The reason for that is he was in the same condition as Adam was, but Jesus didn't sin. Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God. And he lived according to the Spirit of God. And so what that tells you and I is that we have the power in us through the Holy Spirit to live the life that God's calling us to live. Simple as that. Jesus Christ broke the curse. You can't blame it on Adam and Eve anymore. You can't blame your sin on the flesh because Jesus broke the curse. His blood is that effective that he broke the curse for you. So now you're in the sinful flesh, yeah, and you know you have a war going on between the spirit and the flesh, and you have to put on the spirit, and you have to put on off the flesh and all of that stuff, but what I'm saying is God has empowered you to live the life of selflessness, of love, of all these things that Jesus did. And so we really don't have any excuses. We have to get beyond ourselves in order to be used, and what does that require? Humility. It requires humility. Jesus noticed how they... They chose the places of honor. Now, he, there's a lesson in this choosing that Jesus picks up on immediately. The lesson is in how they chose their seat. It's in their pride that they chose their seat. In this culture, when you went to a banquet or you went to a wedding or something like that, the seating arrangement was important. Like, that seating arrangement said everything about who you were in the culture, in, in, that, in that city or that town or whatever it is. Where you sat mattered. So when you came into a place and you looked around, you go, oh, there's not very many prominent people here. I guess I am the prominent one. I guess I will sit at the right or left-hand side of the host. The host would sit in the middle. And, you know, the, the, you, you understand that the, um, the, the Last Supper picture that we see of the disciples right and left, you know, Jesus in the middle. Well, they used a triclinium table, which is basically like a U-shaped tables, you know, and the host would sit in the middle, and then everybody from greatest to least would fan out to the end. Okay, so you had, you know, you, you would have Jesus, and of course, James and John, because they asked, right, right and left, no, just, no they, he said, that's not for me to give, but, but you know, you had the disciples there, and then and the, the three, you know, and then, they, then it fanned out to from the greatest to the least. That's the way their culture worked. That, that is the way that it happened. And so when you would come to a banquet or something like that, you would walk into that place, you would choose your seat. But you better choose carefully. It's, it's your pride on the line here. You better choose high enough, but you better not choose too high that you, you're, you're removed and placed somewhere else. And so Jesus saw what was happening there. He's speaking to the invited guests at this point. He hasn't gotten to the host yet. And so he starts to speak into their lives. And he says, I saw the way that you guys chose your seats. Let me speak to you in a parable now. Verse 8. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down at a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he uh, who invited you will both come to you and say, give, her, give, her of the, um, give your place to this person. And then you will be, uh, begin with shame to take the lowest place. And so Jesus is saying, that when you walk into that place and you choose your seat, if you don't choose wisely, you're going to be humiliated. You have two choices when it comes to this. You can humble yourself or you can be humiliated. Those are the two options when it comes to God. You know that? You can humble yourself or you can be humiliated because God hates pride. He hates it. He can't stand pride. And he calls it out. That's why Jesus deals with it here. He's calling these guys out on their self-righteousness, on their pride that they think they're so great that they can make it to heaven on their own. Jesus says when you go to a wedding feast, how many of you guys like weddings? You guys like weddings? No, nobody likes weddings in this place? I, I thought all the women were like, oh, it's so lovely. It's just love is in the air and all this kind of stuff. And, and I'm like, yeah, there's cake, so... You know, I love that. And, you know, when, when you come to a wedding in our culture, there's not really designed seats except for one table, right? There's one table that, that has assigned seats. Some, some weddings may have assigned seats for everyone, but I, I very rarely have I seen that. But, um, you know, at the very least, there's one table that has assigned seating, and that's the wedding party. And, you know, what would be the best seat in the house in, that, in our culture in that, in that setting? would be by the cake, right? No, it would be by the groom or the bride. Those places are reserved for the, 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 um, the whatever it is, the best man or the um, maid of honor, right? 
if you stroll into a wedding as an invited guest and you think yourself so highly that you would just sit down in the, in the uh, best man's seat or in the maid of honor seat and you would just say, well, I, I'm great friends with these guys and, you know, of course my prominence would, would of course, validate the fact that I should sit here, right? And so I'm going to sit here. And when the bride and, and, and the groom would come to the table, they would go, what are you doing here? Well, it's me, man. You know, it's me. Me and you have this relationship. You know, I'm great. You're not so much, but I make you greater, so I'll sit here with you, and we'll make this thing better, right? No, that's not how it's going to go down. Uh, you know, the guy's going to say, hey, you, this is my best man seat. You can't sit here. You have to move. Can you imagine everybody else watching this go down? What happened? You got humiliated. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. That somebody would choose a seat that belongs to somebody else, and it all is a result of the prominence of who they are. Jesus says, be careful about how you choose your seat. Now, I want you to hear this carefully. It's not that you chose the best seat. It's how you chose it. It's the motive in the heart of why you did it. Jesus said in the synagogue, I think it's Luke chapter 11. You can look it up later, somewhere around there. But he said, you Pharisees and scribes love the best seats in the synagogue. The best seats in the synagogue would be the ones right up front where everybody could see you. Why did they love them? Pride. It's not wrong to want to sit in the best seat in God's house, which nobody's sitting in. The best seat in God's house is in the back row, apparently. But, but here's the thing. The backers hold it down back there. But um, here's the reality. It's not wrong to have the best seat. It's wrong in the motive of your heart and how you choose that. Don't think of yourself so greatly. And then Jesus goes on to say, hey, sit in the lowest place. That shows your heart. Go and sit in that, the lower place, and then if you're, if you're brought up to the higher place, then you're exalted. And then he'll go into the principle. But here's the thing. Jesus said, choose wisely. Just be, be wise about how you choose where you go because your choices matter. It reveals your heart. It tells what you think about yourself, and it tells everybody else what you think about yourself. And so you don't want to honor yourself. You know, in God's church, when we come together and we gather together, our whole point is not to honor ourselves. The entire point of this is to honor him. He has to be the center of it. And if we ever get off track, if it's me or, or somebody else in this place that, start, that, that starts to gravitate men towards yourself, that's pride. And that's wrong. And you know what? Jesus only is the only one that deserves worship. He's the only one that deserves to be elevated. So we, we, we want to we wanna choose wisely. We don't want to also pretend like we're choosing wisely. We don't want to take the last seat in the house and act like, oh, look how humble I am. That's prideful. God knows your heart. Jesus is watching and he sees the motive, and he knows why you're doing what you're doing. So he would say to you, be careful with your heart. Be careful. Watch pride. Cover yourself. Pray against pride in your life. There's nothing greater, though, than, than, than be sitting in the lowest seat and being elevated to the highest. When I was traveling a lot, I, I used to get upgraded from coach to first class, you know. Peter probably does it all the time now, but... Here's the thing is that you have this status with an airline, right? And you fly so much that you have a status with them. And, and so that gives you some kind of clout with them. And so when you get on the plane and you have your coach ticket and you're sitting in your coach seat or whatever, and um, they have something open up in the front seat because someone didn't show up, although they booked them all out, somebody didn't show up. Now they go, okay, we, we want to fill that seat with one of our elite members. And so let's look through the list. Oh, here it is, Peter Miller. We're going to... Uh, let, let's just ding the, it, Peter Miller. If you're, uh, can you ring your flight attendant button, uh, and uh, you know, and let us know where you're located, please. And then you you ding your bell, and uh, and they're like ding, and everybody's looking at you like, whoa, what's going on, man? He's in trouble. And the the flight attendant comes up to you and he says, Mr. Miller, um, you know, there there's uh, been a change of. 
plans here, and uh, we have a first-class seat available for you. We'd like you to collect your belongings and just come on up front. And everybody's looking at him like, whoa, man, what's up with that guy? He's pretty, pretty cool. He didn't choose that. He got it. He, 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 was, he, he sat in his seat and then in, in his lowly coach seat, and he was elevated. That's what Jesus is talking about. Where you sit matters to Jesus. He, he goes on and he gives us the principle, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humble and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The principle behind the illustration is this, humility leads to exaltation. Don't play the self-exalting game. Don't try and elevate yourself. You want to be honored, humble yourself. Proverbs 29.23 says this, one's pride will bring him low. But he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom. And humility comes, what? Before honor. How, Lord, can I, you know, how can I, how can I be honored? How can I honor? And the Lord would say, by honoring me and being humble, you'll be honored. And he would say, the way that you live your life here on this earth will upgrade you in heaven, if you will. That he will call you from one seat to another place based on, on who he is and, what, and, and how he sees things, not based on who you think you are. Well, I've been walking with God for 50 years. I've really got a big crown in heaven, do you? You may not. You may be a pot banger. Why, somebody else is a king of some other city or something. But you'll be content, it's okay. But what I'm saying is, is it's, not the, it's not about the duration of time that you walk with Jesus. It's about what you did with that time. It's about how you lived. It's about, you know, did you exalt him? Did you honor him? You know, this is where the, the Bema Seat judgment happens, where we get our rewards and all that kind of stuff. It's all wrapped into, to, um, you know, the motives even of why we do what we do. There is... Probably no greater culture or generation or whatever you want to call it that's, li that, that's lived that has, uh, you know, any greater um, temptation to be self-promoters than, than the culture we live in today and the way that we, and, and because of technology. I talked about last week, you know, we have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have Instagram, and it's like, hey, look at me, hey. You know, it's all the selfies and all this kind of stuff, and, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, God sees our heart and why we're doing what we're doing. I can't wait to post that so everybody can see how great I am. And here's what I would say is it's not wrong to share stuff because it's encouraging, right? When you read something on somebody's Facebook page or their Instagram or something and God has transformed their life or, or whatever, because it happens in Christian circles just as much as it happens outside of Christian circles, is that, you know, you want to say something about something, but why do you want to say it? And that would be the question you should ask yourself before you post anything. Who am I trying to exalt here? Who, who am I trying to exalt? Who am I trying to, 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 to bring glory to, myself? Or am I trying to help somebody? Am I trying to minister to somebody? I'm trying to, you know, and, and you see all these posts of these people, man, they're like, oh, I'm getting off Facebook now because, you know, everybody's fake on this thing and da-da-da-da. And it's like, well, no, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, come on. There, this is a great avenue to be able to share Jesus Christ with people all over the place, not just in your little city. Jesus said, take the gospel into the world, into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we as a culture have an opportunity to do that greater than anyone because of technology. You can, you can affect somebody in you know, Saudi Arabia or in India or in you know, Indonesia as a result of social media. What I'm saying is, is be careful about why you're doing what you're doing. And that when you post something, that it's, it's out of the heart of God, I want you to be exalted. Because sometimes we're just, you know, we live in that culture and we see, uh, you know, all this stuff and, it, and it's in us. Our flesh wants to be exalted. It desires it. We want attention. Just be careful about that. Jesus is the greatest illustration of this principle where it says he humbled himself. Philippians 2, 8 through 11, we already talked about it. He humbled himself and what happened? He was exalted. 
It was given in the name above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess to the glory of the, of the Father. Jesus humbled himself and he was exalted. You want to be exalted, you have to humble yourself. You have to be real. And really, honestly, if the motive is I want to be exalted, then really isn't that pride? Isn't the, the, the entire motive to be Jesus, I want you to be elevated. Jesus, I want you to be elevated. I want you to get all the glory. And then you'll be exalted. It's all about the direction you're pointing. Jesus moves on. He gives some advice real quick to these fellows, to the host of the party there. In verse 12, he says, He said also to the man who had, he had invited, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be pay, repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of, ju of the just. Jesus turns away from the invited guests now. He turns to the host of the dinner party and he speaks right into his life about pride. The host is kind of like, yeah, you guys are really messed up, man. <laughs> you guys are over here fighting over the best seats in the house, you know. I'm the host. And Jesus says, well, I got a word for you too. Why did you invite all these guys? What was your intent? What was your motive? Again, in this culture, if you would invite somebody, it was all about reciprocalness, right? And, and, and really, the, the, the invitation was a kind of currency that you would use, you know, to, to, to buy your way into society, if you will. That, that's kind of how it worked. So if you invited me to your party and you gave me semi, you know, some, some level of respect and I had some, some semi seed of prominence there, then when I had a party, I was obligated to invite you now and do the same. It was repayment for what you did for me. It was almost like a, an un, like a, a secret currency that they used to um, you know, sort of elevate each other in society. Isn't that stupid? Wait, we do that, don't we? We kind of do that. We kind of do that. We, we kind of invite people that we want to be around. We kind of, oh, well, if I... If I'm in your wedding, you're going to be in my wedding. And, you know, if, if I do this, then you're... The, and we live in that kind of reciprocal world where we expect somebody to do something because we did something for them. How many of you would say, be honest, you're before the Lord? How many of you would say, it's not a serious question, but how many of you would say that um, when you get a gift, you feel terrible because you didn't get them a gift? Anybody? Anybody like that? It's all reciprocalness, right? I mean, it's, it's all based on they did something for me and now I feel obligated to do something to them. We live in a, a society of obligation. And Jesus would say, that's the wrong way to live. Don't live that way. You're not obligated. Listen, if I, if I were to do something kind to you or whatever, you're not obligated to me. And I certainly don't feel obligated to you if you do something kind to me. That's not, as the church, that's not what it's about. We love each other because Christ loves us. And it's his love that flows through us into other people. This is not a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If we are living that way in the church, then we are living the same way the world is living. This is not about social status or anything like that. Jesus says, invite the people that can't repay you. That's who you want to invite to your house. Now, again, this doesn't mean you don't ever have a dinner party with your family or your friends or anything like that. But, but I think there's a, there is a principle here that, that, that we should be inviting people that, that you know, are the least of, of those that we know over and ministering and, and, and loving on them and making them feel special, making them feel like they're loved. Because maybe you are the least. And Jesus loved you. And so he would, he would say, you know, invite those that can't repay you, those who are poor and lame and, you know, those that, that, that can't do anything, that, that from a societal standpoint are completely rejected. Invite them over. That's how you become like me. 
that's who Jesus went after. And he's going to go on next week. And you know, the, you know the parable. You read it later. He's going to expand on that next week as we get into it. But, but Jesus said, you will be repaid in the resurrection. There is repayment coming for all that you do. God, Listen, God is a debtor to no man. God is a debtor to no man. Whatever you do on this earth on his behalf, you will be rewarded for. He is a debtor to no man. And oftentimes we get an earthly reward and a heavenly reward. God blesses us in the fact that we even get to be part of what he's doing, right? Because it's a blessing to help people. And then in heaven there is a reward waiting for you. And that's why Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven. Be, be heavenly focused, you know. Be ministry focused. We're all in ministry. And he would... He would tell you, you know, invite those people that aren't the greatest in society. Invite those people that would be the least, that you would have them come over to your place and that you could minister to because nobody else is inviting them. Nobody else is going to invite them, so you invite them. You're the church. You're the ambassadors of Christ. You invite them and have them come. Let me ask you, Christian, who are you living to impress? The world around you or the God who created you? If you're living to impress the world around you, that's easy. It's easy to do that. That's your natural tendency. You buy the right clothes. You say the right things. You have the right house. You get the right car. You get all of that stuff, which is not that hard to obtain. And you're in the social circle, and you're good. And then you have your nature, which fits right into that culture. Who are you living to impress? If you begin to live for the one who created you, who loves you, who died for you, he can not only satisfy you, but he will also exalt you. He will lift you up. He will bless you beyond what you thought possible because he is God. He is the God of the impossible. He is the God of the impossible. He will bless you beyond measure. So if you want to be honored and exalted, serve him with everything that you have. Do what, uh, what you do for his glory, not yours. And in the end, you will be honored. You will be exalted. For the word says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So I want to challenge you this week as you live your life, that you ask yourself, why am I doing this? That you ask yourself, what is my motive? in everything that I'm doing. Holy Spirit, give me understanding of my motive right now, why I'm doing this. Help me to understand who I'm living for in this moment, Lord. And if, I'm, if my, my, my motives are wrong, help me to change them so that they're right. Because I want to exalt you. I want you to get the glory. And in so doing, I just happen to be rewarded for that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, that you are an incredible example of humility. You think about the fact that we as sinners have been separated from you. <laughs> why you continued on with creation, why you continued on to let the world revolve is because you love us. And so you operate in humility in that way. So much so that you would send a Savior to reconcile us to yourself. You would give us the grace of God. You would fill us with the faith of God to believe. And yet somehow we become prideful, even as Christians, Lord, about our walk with you, about our church, about our doctrine, about what we know how we act towards one another, Lord. So we're just asking you today, Lord, to just kill uh, pride in our hearts. And you would help us to be filled with humility as we consider the way that we were brought into this family by grace through faith. Nothing that we did. It wasn't because of who we are. It was because of who you are. Lord, we want to represent you well. We want to glorify your name. We want you to be seen clearly. We want you to be exalted, Lord. 
Just help us to get out of the way that you might be exalted. So I ask this for an outpouring of your spirit on our lives today, Lord, and that you would just continually reveal the pride in our hearts and help us to humble ourselves. Because we don't want to be resisted by you, Lord. We want to be just receiving that free flow, abundant love and grace from you, Lord. And so, God, we want to humble ourselves today. And we know that's what it requires for us to receive those things. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves, we receive you, and we ask you for power to stay in the a place of humility. I pray for every person in this place today, Lord, whether they're in relationship with you or not in relationship with you, that even right now that through this characteristic of humility, Lord, we would respond to you during this last song, that we would just cry out to you, Lord, personally in our own lives, and that we would just confess what we need to confess, maybe invite you in, recommit our life to you, whatever it might be. We ask for your spirit to just move as we close, and we just thank you for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.